and he knew better than to smile back. Always cheerful, brimming with the irrepressible joy of his own intelligence, Sandy Glass smiled most when he was angry. I said you had to stop using RSV, Sandy reminded Cliff. You said you understood. Cliff nodded. We established RSV had some effect in vitro, Glass said. Congratulations. You're on your way to curing cancer in a Petri dish. But what have we established when we try injecting RSV into living mice? Cliff looked away. You've established nothing. You injected 56 mice with RSV with no effect on tumors whatsoever. Therefore, Marion and I asked you to stop. We asked you nicely to move on. What did you do next? I tried again, Cliff said, staring down at the floor. Yes, you did. You tried again. I'm sorry. Sandy ignored this. We told you to stop wasting resources on RSV. I didn't want to give up, Cliff said. Look, I realize RSV was your baby, Sandy said. I realize this was two years' work developing the virus. Two and a half years, Cliff amended silently. We understand you put your heart and soul into this project. Sandy glanced at Marion, who looked anything but understanding. The point is, RSV does not work, and now yet another set of experiments, against all advice, against our specific instructions. What were you thinking, Cliff? They were expecting an answer. But Cliff could not speak. The truth shamed him. It was so simple. He could not bear to jettison work that had taken so much time. The hours, the thousands of hours he'd spent, sickened him. A scientist was, by definition, impassive. He cut his losses and moved on to something else. A scientist did not allow emotion to govern his experiments, and yet Cliff had been emotional and unrealistic about his work. There was only one reasonable explanation. He was not a scientist. This was what Mendelssohn and Glass were driving at. Did we or did we not agree, said Glass, that you would end the wholesale extermination of our lab animals? We don't have the money, said Mendelssohn. And she didn't mean funds for the mice themselves, which cost about $15 each, but the money for the infinite care the delicate animals required. You'll recall we asked you to work with Robin. She could still use another pair of hands, Glass said. And Cliff hated him for that, and for the patronizing, slightly prurient tone in Glass's voice. I deserve my own project, Cliff said, raising his eyes. There's no such thing as your own project in this lab, Mendelssohn declared. Look, this is a team, Glass said, and you need to pull your weight, not drag everyone else down with your personal flights of fancy. Down the hall in the lab, the others gathered like near relations at a funeral. They wouldn't fire him, Prithwish said loyally. He was Cliff's roommate, after all. They will not fire him, Fang agreed. Natalia thought about this. My feeling is Mendelssohn would not, but Glass would. She was Russian and had been a doctor herself before coming to America. Natalia had never taken to Glass. They'll be arguing then, said Prithwish. They'll let him stay, Aiden predicted, and make him so miserable he'll leave by himself. He was miserable before, Prithwish pointed out, but the others hushed him. Cliff was coming back down the corridor. Instantly, his friends scattered, vanishing into the clutter of glassware and instruments like rabbits in the brush. All but Robin, who pulled at Cliff's sleeve. 
Silently, they slipped into the adjoining stockroom, the lab's poisonous pharmacological pantry. She closed the door behind her. Are you all right? His cheeks were flushed, his eyes unusually bright. I'm fine. She drew closer, but he turned away. What are you going to do? I don't know, he said. They've already tried to pawn me off on you. They suggested that you work with me? Six months ago, but I said no. She was surprised and hurt. You never told me that. What was the point? I didn't want to work on your stuff. She folded her arms. What's wrong with my stuff? Nothing, he lied. She had spent five years working on what had once been considered a dazzling project, an analysis of frozen samples of blood collected over the years from cancer patients who had died of various forms of the disease. Sandy Glass had been convinced that somewhere in these samples was a common marker, a significant tag that would suddenly reveal a unifying syndrome underlying his patient's tragic and diverse conditions. Glass had presented the project to Robin in her first year with a flourish, as if he were bestowing upon her a great gift. He'd chosen her for her fierce intelligence, her passion for discovery, her ambition. And of course, Glass had always liked a beautiful postdoc. Still, even Robin could not spin Glass's dross into gold. So there's nothing wrong with my work, but it's not good enough for you, she challenged Cliff. No, I didn't say that. That's what you were thinking. Look, if I ever thought that, I'm sorry, just please. Gravely, she turned on him. But you aren't sorry. Stop. I just thought, she began, don't think anything. Just leave me alone. He strode back through the lab and out into the hall. How could Robin expect him to talk to her? What did she want from him? To beg her to let him work on her dismal black hole of a project? to break down sobbing on her shoulder so she could comfort him? He still heard the humorous disdain in Glass's voice. He saw the hard disappointment in Mendelssohn's eyes. There was Prithwish coming after him down the corridor. Cliff was not going to suffer his condolences. He escaped into the stairwell and bolted down the stairs. Outside the Institute, the snow had stopped. The December sun was setting, and the world was strangely still. He walked over a mile, as far as MIT, and then turned around and started back again past shuttered Victorian factories converted into warehouses, red brick ramparts lowering in the shadows of taller office buildings. He thought of his thesis advisor, now dead. What would Professor Oppenheimer have said? He'd have laughed, of course, showing off his yellow teeth. He'd say, what do you expect? You don't listen to the lab director, you get busted. You screw around with someone in the lab, of course you're going to end up fighting later. You get what you deserve. How many times do I have to tell you, don't shit where you eat? The cold air began to smooth and smother his angry pride. Numb despair overtook indignation. He imagined Prithwish was still at the lab. Cliff wouldn't have to see him when he got to the apartment. But then, what did he care? Cliff had already had his humiliation, and he felt with some relief that his capacity for embarrassment, at least for this evening, was used up. What did it matter if he'd wasted years? What did he care if he'd ruined his chances in research? Realistically, what had been the odds that he'd succeed? As he began trudging north to Somerville, the balm of apathy began to soothe Cliff's wounds. His despair seemed to melt and pool inside him, until he could almost congratulate himself that he was no longer desperate, 
but simply demoralized and depressed. Emotions entirely accepted, even expected, in the lab. You can't just crawl under a rock, Aiden told Cliff on the eve of Sandy Glass's Christmas party. Aiden and Natalia and Robin had come to pick him and Prithwish up. I'm not crawling under a rock, I just don't feel like going, Cliff said. Ta-ta-ta-tum. Aiden sang out the theme from Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet while playing air violin. The lab tech position was just Aiden's day job. He was really a baritone and soloed all around Boston. He worked with Emanuel Music, among other groups, and sang cantatas at every opportunity, even to the mice in the animal facility. Ta-ta-ta-tum, ta-ta-ta-tum, he serenaded Cliff. Very funny, Cliff said. You'll need letters of recommendation, Robin reminded Cliff. She took his hand and he smiled a little. Only she could be so earnest in such a low-cut black dress. You need to work, said Prithwish as he nodded his red tie. You need to eat, said Natalia. You can't turn away from all that free food, added Prithwish. I'll drink to that, said Aiden, and he produced a bottle of champagne from inside his dress coat. Let's just stay here, Cliff said to Robin. No, no, you aren't going to burn your bridges like that. You're going to work this out, she told him. Here, see? We brought you a drink to get you started. Cliff wasn't the only one who needed fortification before the Christmas party. Even in the best of times, the researchers approached this event with trepidation. Sandy's house was so grand, his polished floors so perfect, his Persian carpets so rich and delicate, they never knew quite where to put their feet. Shy on arrival, the postdoc stood in the entryway until Anne Glass took their coats and ushered them into the living room.